0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
1: This is the Performance People podcast with me, Georgie.
2: And me, Ben. This pod is all about people who know about performance.
1: We're going to speak to some of the biggest performers in sport, entertainment, business and politics about how they got there and how they stay there.
2: And we'll talk to those closest to them about all the stuff we didn't already know about them.
1: You can listen to Performance People in the usual places where you get your podcasts or watch us on YouTube and don't forget you can always follow us on our Performance People channels.
2: For now though, here's our latest episode.
1: Joining us on today's Performance People is an ocean swimmer and campaigner and his right-hand man.
2: Lewis Pugh is the first person to undertake long-distance swims in every ocean of the world, creating publicity to, as he puts it, shake the lapels of world leaders.
1: And joining Lewis is sports lawyer and performance mind coach David Becker. David's one of Lewis's closest friends. He's also helped him on every single one of his ocean adventures.
2: Together, they're Performance People on a
3: mission the speed of the crisis, it's almost as if glaciers now are moving faster than our world leaders. This is the defining issue of our generation. We'll do whatever it takes now to try and get at least 30% of our oceans uh, fully protected now by 2030. This is my
4: life's mission. It's often said that someone with a uh, strong enough why can put up with any how. And Lewis has this emotional juice, this uh, this drive. In order for Lewis to swim at the North Pole, he had to be in a in, in highly enhanced state, uh, a peak state, if you like.
1: So thank you, both of you, for coming on. Um, I think we're probably best off by establishing how you two know each other before we launch into how um, everything's unfolded since then for both of you in, in your respective worlds. Uh, maybe, Lewis, can you, can you start by explaining... How, how you met David and, and the role that he plays in your life?
3: It, it was very, very simple. I, I sat next to him on the first day of university in Cape Town, uh, first day of law school. And I often look back at my life and think to myself, <laughs> it might be very different had I not sat next to him. Because, you know, when you go to university, you often sort of sit in your groups and you sometimes don't mix. But But David turned out to be an amazing friend. And that's been a friendship which has gone on for well, well over 30 years now.
1: And David, we're going to track right back to Lewis's childhood in a little bit and sort of explain how he's now the man that he is and what's led him to do the incredible things that he's done. But, I mean, you as as his friend, sort of watching him over these however many years it's been, I don't want to put an age thing on it, but um, however many years it's been, I suspect a, a couple of decades. <laughs> How has he? How has he sort of evolved as a person? I mean, we, we've spoken a few times about this, but how has he changed as a person for you? Uh, but your friendship remains so strong.
4: Yes, it's been an extraordinary journey, um, particularly when I think back to those early days at university down in Cape Town when we were studying law. And the thing which stands out for me is just how shy and reserved Lewis was. Uh, He kept to himself, didn't say much, Uh, and there was certainly no inkling then that he would be speaking on stages across the world as a diplomat, as an ocean advocate. Uh, So it's been incredible to see um, Lewis develop and really harness the different aspects to his armory. You know, as as a speaker, as a philanthropist, as as an athlete, um, as an ambassador, a patron of the oceans now for the UN, so to see all those aspects of Lewis develop and progress to the point where he is now has been uh, hugely rewarding for me as, as a close friend and, uh, and confidant.
1: David's had a huge role to play, Lewis, in, in that storyline, which we'll get to. But just take us right back to the beginning and, and how it all started for you, how life started for you and, and how some of that early childhood bit has influenced what came next.
3: I grew up in Plymouth. Uh, when you grow up in Plymouth, Plymouth describes itself as Britain's ocean city. And I think it is that. When you when you grow up in Plymouth, you're always looking at ships coming in and out, the Royal Navy's based there, and uh, you're constantly looking out over the horizon. So I was no different to any of the other kids in Plymouth looking out over the horizon. I dreamt that one day I'd be going out to sea. Uh, fast forward until I was 10 years old and uh, my family emigrated out to South Africa, Initially, we went to the Eastern Cape, but later on, we moved to to Cape Town, and I went to a school which overlooked the Atlantic Ocean, and I just used to look out over the Atlantic Ocean. Ever since I was a little boy, I always dreamt that I would go out to sea, but also that I would go to the polar regions, and then being in Cape Town, I was just that much closer to the polar regions, and I used to look outside my classroom and just think, 5,000 kilometers south of here is Antarctica. I want to go to Antarctica. And uh, that's that's kind of how my, my life sort of started. You know, these dreams of going to these places and um, and growing up in Cape Town also, one, one learns to, to love swimming because uh, on either side, uh, you have magnificent places to swim. So in Cape Town, on the one side, you can swim in the Atlantic Ocean. On the other side, you can swim in the Indian Ocean. You can swim on flat water, cold water, rough water, you're right next to the Cape of Good Hope if you want to swim in really rough water. If you want to swim with sharks, you've got everything there if you want to become an endurance swimmer. I
2: was going to say, is this a good time to bring up your shark phobia again, Georgie?
3: <laughs> Maybe could give us some more this, tips of swimming
2: with the sharks and how to, how to cope with that. No, I mean, sharks are
3: reality. So, so when you swim in Cape Town, you are swimming in waters which are the, are the home of the great white shark. And these are some of the most incredible animals on earth. And in, in all my swims subsequent to the original swims which I did in Cape Town, there's always been some type of predator that you're having to deal with, whether that be a, a great white shark, whether that be a hippo, a crocodile, a polar bear. And one grows to learn how to respect and to and to love the, the, these animals. But I mean, the great white shark is a is a fearsome fearsome animal, and, and you need to to be careful when you're swimming in waters where there are great white sharks.
1: We, we, to self.
3: we had uh we had a very em, another
2: eminent naturalist on the podcast who who was giving us the impression that he he felt that he could talk down a tarantula spider at certain moments or at least be able to get into the mind of the tarantula to decide whether it was going to have Would a go de- de- decipher at its not.
1: body language i mean is that the same with a <laughs> yeah. great white shark can you figure out from the body language what might happen next
3: uh, I'm very, very cautious with great white sharks. I mean, these these are some of the you know the biggest animals you can ever imagine. I was doing a swim around the Cape of Good Hope early on in my career, and I was swimming with a few other swimmers. That's one of the most important things. If you are going to swim with great white sharks, make sure you're not the only person. Anyway, there were a few of us who were, who, who were swimming around the Cape of Good Hope, and it happened so incredibly quickly, this enormous great white, and it was like a torpedo came underneath us. And your first reaction when you see such a big animal come underneath you, and so close. I mean, if I had taken a stroke, I would have touched it. Your, your first reaction is, oh, and you think you're going to be taken. And then there's a kind of, you gasp, and then you look down. And then you almost feel a, a, a draw towards it, because it is such a magnificent creature. Anyway, as quickly as it came, it disappeared. But I've never seen Four swimmers move so quickly towards the support boat as <laughs> when that happened, and so, it disappeared. And then the skipper, the skipper, just said, "Come on, guys, carry on." <laughs> and so we did, and we successfully completed that swim.
2: It's a serious brown pants moment, though.
3: <laughs> presumably. Yes, uh, I suppose the, the the closest I've come to one is. Halfway between New Zealand and, and, and Antarctica is an, is an island called Campbell Island. Uh, it's a, at around about sort of 60, 70 degrees south. And it's an incredible island. They have these great big fur seals down there. And you know when you see these David Attenborough documentaries and you see these animals just clashing on beaches down in, in South Georgia and places like that? I want you to imagine that enormous great seal just clashing and fighting and then they've got blood all over their necks and they're fighting. Anyway... I, I did a swim near there, and one of these things came for me, and it's it's quite terrifying because it it, it happens so incredibly quickly. I was lucky; I had a had a, a New Zealand skipper with me who dragged me out, and it, we were literally seconds from being taken by that by that animal. So, uh, and they're just trying to play. You know, when you start swimming in Antarctica and the Arctic, you can bet your bottom dollar that none of these animals penguins, polar bears you know, seals, leopard seals, elephant seals, none of them have ever seen somebody swimming before.
1: Um, So they just want to see what's happening. Is coming face-to-face with a shark more or less terrifying than speaking on a stage um, in front of the Queen at the Commonwealth?
3: Speaking at Westminster Abbey on the 70th anniversary of the Commonwealth, and, you know, you've got to get it right you know and it, there was so much practicing that went on the three dress rehearsals etc and then the, you've got somebody who at the time was a 94 year old monarch at the back of the at the back of Westminster abbey you know they got 2000 people in there you got majority of the royal family you got the prime minister and all cabinet ministers at the back of the room you got children as young as 12 how do you pitch a story to somebody who is a 70, I mean a, a 94-year-old monarch and also can resonate with 12-year-old children. That's that's not an easy task. So what was the speech
1: you made? So what was that what was the main crux of the story that you told that you think probably was able to resonate with that, that demographic?
3: Well, it was interesting because we had all these dress rehearsals and and uh, there's a lot of form and substance. So it starts off with Your Majesty, your Royal Highnesses. Lords, ladies, high commissioners from across the Commonwealth, ladies and gentlemen, etc. I was given seven minutes, and I thought to myself, "I'm not going to spend thirty seconds or seven minutes going through that." And so, I, so I said to the person who was responsible for this, uh, uh, who was a canon at uh, Westminster Abbey, I said, "Listen, I'm from the Southern Hemisphere, okay." We've got to drop some of these formalities. Otherwise we just we just waste an awful lot of time and you lose the audience immediately. So I said, I'm gonna start right at the North Pole. And so I think my words were, and he warned me beforehand. He said to me, Please don't look at the Queen. Because people often look down at because you're standing up on a on a on a pulpit. And he said, You look down at the Queen and you're expecting a reaction. And that's quite uncomfortable for her. So just don't look at her. And just look at the TV cameras. So anyway, so I started off the speech with, I'm standing at the North Pole and I start taking off my clothes until I'm just down to my speedos. <laughs> and then I made the mistake of looking, to, looking down at the Queen. And she'd had her head down. And then she looked up and you could just see that she was thinking, this is the first time I've heard this in Westminster Abbey. And I wonder where this is going. So I spoke to people about swimming across the North Pole and that commitment which I needed to actually dive in and the commitment which all of us around the Commonwealth now need to protect our oceans. And the Commonwealth is made up of 54 nations. And I said, our Commonwealth is our oceans because most of the Commonwealth nations are uh, maritime nations. They've got coastlines. And I said, collectively, we can do something very, very important and lead the world on this. So that was
1: my message. Go on, share your Queen story, because you've met the Queen as well. Go on, let's let's share Queen story. I don't have one, so I can't contribute. And David, I don't know if you can, but it's quite interesting to hear it from these two.
2: So I was invited to Windsor Castle for a dinner and, and to stay the night. But being totally disorganised, as I often am, and I'd come, I'd been overseas somewhere. So I turned up rather late in my, my sponsored sailing car, driving to the castle grounds, and get ushered off to, to, to this accommodation to get changed quickly because I'm late to realize I've i I've got my dinner jacket, but I haven't got any studs <laughs> for my dress yet. I haven't got a bow tie. <laughs> so now I'm in a complete Can flat. Can you imagine? And uh, some very kind equerry, I guess, came along and probably happens a lot more than we, yeah, we'd imagine. They probably have a stash so of them these, somewhere. So suddenly these uh, studs turn up. And then I go rushing off to try and find the reception, but get completely lost in Windsor Castle. End up, you know, going in a... You know, it was just a disaster, basically. But anyway, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to meet some brilliant people. And yeah, they do this yeah. thing. They take you in after dinner. They go into the library. And for each of the guests, they they have made a presentation. So for me, they had... Uh, I think it was uh, George V. Uh, they, had, they had a lot of... Um, memorabilia around his yacht um, Britannia and they also had which was the most amazing thing the bullet that killed Admiral Lord Nelson, Nelson. they had the the bullet and so but to I hold love this that bullet they're taking the yeah.
1: time to yeah. dedicate each guest had a different it
2: was yeah it was one wonderful experience it was very very generous and uh yeah yeah special special moment not one to forget
1: David, can you can you ever have imagined when you, like you alluded to it earlier, but when you met Lewis at university and he was shy and quite quiet and reserved, can you ever have imagined that he would have been giving a speech in front of the Queen in that in that context at that time?
4: No, I couldn't imagine it. And uh, I was there that day in, in Westminster. Lewis invited me and it was an extraordinary day really, because he could have heard a pin drop in Westminster Abbey. Um, And Lewis, as he said, had only seven minutes to deliver a very important message. So it was an extraordinary day, um, one that will live long in my memory. And, um, you know, that speech is available on YouTube. I encourage everybody to go and listen to it. It was uh, certainly one of the most impactful speeches that he's made.
1: So Lewis, from um, obviously uh, you were studying, you two, at law school in Cape Town. And then from there, what happened? What happened between there and your decision to become a, a, an advocate for the ocean?
3: Myself and David arrived here in the United Kingdom. Uh, we were in our, in our sort of late 20s. Uh, I worked for a few years in, in a big London law firm. But then there comes a the moment you've got to ask yourself, are you doing uh, what you were meant to do with your life? Uh, are you enjoying what you're doing? Are you passionate about what you're doing? And if I ask myself that question, I ask myself that question an awful lot of times. I realized I, uh, I wasn't happy with what I was doing. Um, there then came a moment when I went on a trip to Norway. And this is a beginning of a complete love affair with Norway. And I went all the way. I got on a bicycle and I cycled all the way along the coast, all the way to the most northern place in Norway. And there was this beautiful golden beach and it was a crisp, cold day. And I thought to myself, you know, I was hot and I was sweaty. Let me just jump in the sea here, just quickly, in and out. This is high Arctic. So I I, I put my bike down, I ran into the sea and it was proper cold. I mean, it was bracing. I was very, very thin in those days, but it was hugely invigorating. And So I ran up and down the beach, dived in again and I swam for about two, three minutes and then I thought, oh, this is a little bit better. And I, I did this a few times, and I just absolutely loved it. A year later, I came back because I just wanted to do a big swim there, and so I swam around North Cape, the top of Norway, and that led to a journey whereby every year I was going a little bit further north into the higher, the higher, the higher Arctic until 2007. I had effectively no longer doing law, and David, this moment came with me where I decided. I just want to swim. And during these swims, I began noticing how the oceans were changing. They were changing so rapidly. And I did it, we're doing swims all over the world. And then it came to 2007 and I decided to do this swim across the North Pole. This was a really big swim to highlight you know, the enormous changes which were taking place in the Arctic. And David came on that expedition, and was obviously crucial in working out how to how to get your mind ready for something which is so terrifying is for across the North Pole.
1: And how do you, David? How do you get Lewis's mind in the right place for doing something like that?
4: Yeah, we knew instinctively that doing something as dangerous as that you needed to prepare mentally extremely well. It wasn't just going to be a very tough physical endeavour, but also uh, going to require immense mental conditioning and fortitude. So I had uh, been an endurance athlete myself and had uh, done a BA in psychology um, as part of my law degree and I was fascinated by human motivation. Uh, By that stage, I'd been uh, doing a number of endurance events myself and I started sharing with Lewis some of the techniques that I had learned to help him prepare for this uh, show in particular. We'd started working together a few years before on some mental conditioning Aspects, But this this was something else. To swim in in a speedo at minus 1.8 degrees for nearly 20 minutes at the North Pole was extremely life-threatening. So um, I deployed a number of mental skills, really. And he was a a great student. He took it all very seriously. Um, One was a a technique or a skill called neuroassociative conditioning, which is based on the work of Pavlov. You'll remember that. Pavlov used to bring meat to his dogs and they would cause them to salivate and he would uh, ring a bell at the same time. And he did this over and over and over again. Brought the meat, rang the bell, et cetera. And the ringing of the bell pretty soon enough induced a state of salivation. That was the trigger or the anchor. And I knew that we could, in order for Lewis to swim at the North Pole, he had to be in a highly enhanced state, a peak state, if you like. So through a process of neuroassociative conditioning, we installed a number of triggers or anchors which uh, when fired off uh, would change Lewis's physiology and we found that he could actually raise his core body temperature before he even got into the water which was extraordinary at the time and we had one of the world's leading sports scientists up there at the time, (laughs) Professor Tim Noakes and Lewis actually had a rectal thermometer and so we could actually track his core body temperature Um, and we found through this process of conditioning that we were able to use these triggers or anchors to literally change his physiology. And then, of course, I also worked a lot on his beliefs because he needed to be able to see the end result very firmly in his mind-eye. And I used a process called envisioning, which is really uh, visualization but on steroids, taking each of the five senses and the the sub-modalities, as we call them. So, for example, if you visualize something, you can change the intensity of that experience for your nervous system uh, by making it fill up the whole of your mind, making it bright, moving, uh, fully associated, et cetera. So we did that with each of his five senses until he could see the end result very clearly in his mind's eye. And that process also helped to instill the beliefs in him that he could actually undertake this this, uh, pioneering swim. And then I guess another aspect that we worked with a lot uh, is Lewis's sense of purpose. You know, it's often said that someone with a, a strong enough why can put up with any how. And Lewis has this emotional juice, this, uh, this drive, which comes a lot from his youth. And harnessing or, or, or tapping into that was a very powerful force. When you're, when you're standing on the edge of the ice at the North Pole, looking into the, this black, black water um, in freezing conditions, you've got to have a very strong sense of purpose, a very strong why. Uh, and similarly, I remember there was a swim which Lewis did where he swam for 50 days um, along the English Channel. You know, when you're swimming for that length of time, doing something so grueling, you've got to have a very, very strong uh, purpose, a very strong drive. So we tapped into that. And, um, you know, fortunately, he was in a position where he uh, had a strong mindset and that saw him through it.
2: Lewis, how did you actually respond when you first hit that water in the pole? And Mm. what was the sensation like on your body, on your skin? Was it just the most intense shock ever and... Did did all the did all the preparation with Dave? Did that work, or
3: did you have to go and have another another crack at it? So the preparation really helped, but nothing can prepare you for when you actually arrive there. I mean, it's 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 a really terrifying place. So I want you to imagine: we sailed for seven days, we've on a, on a on a on a on a Russian ship. We finally arrived at the North Pole, and in front of us is a big, large, open patch of sea, and that water is completely completely black anyway we walk down onto the edge of the ice we look into the water and it's you realize that this is a a high consequence environment if you get it wrong within the next half an hour you you won't you won't be alive uh and i don't care how brave you are uh you know when you actually look at that type of water it's frightening anyway what we did is we laid out flags all the way along the line so we had 29 people in the team, they came from 10 nations. And so we put one of these flags uh, all the way along. And these were the markers, which I had to swim to, to to get there. Uh, But the Inuit people, so the indigenous people who live high up in the Canadian Arctic and and, and in Greenland, they always say that every single person, there is an almighty battle taking place in the mind. And it's a battle between uh, two wolves. One is a good wolf and the other one is a bad wolf. And which is a wolf which wins? And the which people say it's a wolf which you feed. And I remember thinking to myself just how, you know, if things do go wrong, this, this dreadful thought came into my mind before I was about to get in. If things do go wrong, um, how long is it going to take for my frozen body to sink all the way to the bottom of the ocean? Which is, which is just the worst possible thought. But I was never able to completely silence that bad wolf.
2: Are you a, a religious man at all? I mean, was that a moment where you thought, you know, you're going into something, not that sure you're going to come out of it the other side. Is that something that you thought about going into it?
3: You, you know, Ben, I, I it, it, it was very, very frightening standing there on the ice. And we had done a test swim the day before, which had gone horribly wrong horribly wrong i spent too long in the water i came out my hands were absolutely frozen and that was just after about five six minutes in the water and the one kilometer we thought would take me around about somewhere between 18 and 20 minutes to complete and so if this had happened after just five minutes what would then happen after uh after after 18 minutes and uh, i'll be honest with you there was a there was an awful lot of praying but i also did believe and and this, I hope this doesn't sound too grandiose, that this was what I was meant to do with my life. That 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 I look back at my life and I, I you know, I put put it all together and I said, this place is incredibly special. This place is melting so quickly; there are now large open patches of sea at the North Pole. And Lewis, if you can swim across here, you can send a message to world leaders about the health of our planet because you shouldn't be able to swim here. This is what you were meant to do with your life. Put your head down and just swim. And so uh, I dived into the water and you asked me what that feeling is. I mean, it is. I could barely breathe. I am gasping for air and I've just got to try and focus on just doing the first 20, 30 strokes. And then I start counting strokes. Um, And then I'm just looking up at David and he's giving me signals about how far we are in the swim. We come to certain, you know, all these nations flags were there. And whenever I came to a nation's flag, David had said to me to spend a bit of time slowly swimming past that flag, thinking about all the men, all the women from that nation who've inspired you and helped you so much to be here today, and then just get to the next flag. So we never thought of it as a one kilometer swim. I just had to swim 100 meters and then recalibrate. Now another 100 meters until I got to the end.
2: That's yeah. It's an incredible story. It's, yeah, yeah da- David,
1: it's your your role in this, um, because you've prepped Lewis and you're waiting to see what unfolds. And there comes a point, presumably, where you can't influence what happens. It's Lewis in the water, and it will be what it will be. So, what's that like watching that unfold? I mean, you you you've you've done your training. You are a mental coach. You know, you you've done the work. You know what works and how what the triggers are for Lewis and how he's affected by, you know, various different things. And you've got his, you've right, his body temperature is where it needs to be. But after that, you know, you're, you're sort of helpless after that, aren't you? It's really about Lewis and the water and what happens next. I mean, what's that like just observing?
3: David, can I just answer this? And, and, I, and I tell you the reason why I want to answer this is I've just been on an English Channel swim where I've watched somebody swim the width of the English Channel. And I thought it was going to be a 10-hour swim, and it turned out to be nearly a 13-hour swim. And I'm telling you, it, when you're on the boat and you're watching somebody fighting and fighting, and, and this, this kid was fighting against and a tremendous current, it is horrible watching it. And I want you to multiply that by 50 when somebody is in really, really cold water. It makes agonizing. So I've watched a few people swim in really cold water. It is horrible to watch. I just can't imagine what David was going through watching that on that day. Not only was it extremely cold, but we just didn't know what the outcome was, was going to be. We didn't know that a human could swim for so long in, in water, which is minus
4: 1.7. Yeah, I mean, I would reiterate what Lewis is saying. It was absolutely terrifying because, um, you know, he was endeavoring to be a pioneer and that, and that involves breaking boundaries. But he had given us a clear mandate that if he started to a swim badly, in other words, his body literally started shutting down, we had to pull him out of the water. So we had um, obviously safety plans in place, but I was part of probably two or three people that was empowered to make that decision along with the, the doctor that we had on, on board and Professor Tim Noakes. And so we were faced with this choice of having to constantly assess, knowing that his body temperature was dropping drastically and that his functions were starting to slow down do we pull him out of the water? And so we had that responsibility of watching him and watching his swimming stroke in particular to see. Um, and on one or two swims, uh, there was a swim in the Arctic uh, a few years prior to that where we very, very nearly pulled him out of the water. Um, but he managed to correct his his stroke and, and keep himself going. So I'll never, ever forget that day in the North Pole because, and if you watch it on the video on YouTube, there's a great video. If you search Lewis Pugh North Pole Swim, where you'll see him coming in at the end. Um, And it was terrifying because his bodily functions had slowed down so considerably that he was speaking like a four-year-old boy. Um, And to see my closest friend in that state, um, you know, severely uh, compromised in his bodily functions was, yeah, terrifying.
3: I I mean, the reason why you speak like a four-year-old boy is because when you get into extremely cold water, uh, the body's really clever. It shunts all your warm blood to your core to defend it, to protect it. It l- makes your arm.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
3: and your legs get extremely cold the other part of your body which obviously gets extremely cold is your tongue your tongue literally freezes like a lollipop in your mouth and so when you come out and then David starts talking to me I mean it's impossible to speak because I've got a lollipop in my mouth and uh, and that's also quite quite frightening for the for the medical team
1: so all the lessons that you learned during that swim, didn't you have to reverse the psychology for the Mount Everest swim? Because, and just tell us a little bit about how you approached that and, and perhaps overlooked a particular area which you, which you probably should have focused in on and, and how, that, how that tripped you up when you did the Mount Everest swim. Because that, that's a fascinating sort of story in terms of what can go wrong um, with, with an approach that you thought would work.
3: The thing about Mount Everest, obviously, is it's a... It's a very high mountain. I mean, when you walk when you walk up to Everest, and people, people say it's impressive, but it, it's hard to explain how incredibly impressive it is. You walk around the corner, and then there's Everest in front of you, and it is. It's, it's a big mountain, right? And uh, it's also obviously incredibly high, and with altitude, it's very, very difficult to breathe. And so we tried to swim the way we had always swim, which is fast, crawl, aggressive, generating that heat, that was disastrous on Mount Everest. Uh, you know, we tried it on when we first arrived there, and and I thought I was going to drown. I could just barely breathe, and so we changed the tactics completely. And so instead of swimming fast, I swam as slowly as I could. It sounds counterintuitive, but that was the only way you can swim because you've got to preserve your oxygen. Uh, instead of swimming crawl, I swam breaststroke because then I can breathe whenever I need to. And lastly, I remember the leader of the expedition uh, saying to me, he said, Lewis, he pointed up to Everest and he said, you can't bully Mount Everest. <laughs> and so he said, I want you to swim with real humility. And that really worked. Uh, so we swam breaststroke very, very slowly across this lake. Uh, but it's, it's an incredible place to swim. I mean, to to be up there and, and to see those magic, magic mountains. It's its unbelievable. The reason why we were doing this swim was to highlight the fact that the glaciers in the Himalayas now are beginning to melt away. And, you know, this provides constant water supply to India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, some of the most populous and important countries in the world. You know, without water, there's nothing which you can do. So these, these areas are sadly a cocktail for conflict unless we really get a grip on the climate crisis now.
1: Uh, David, um, I just wanted to pick up on um, what Lewis just said there, though, about the Mount Everest swim. So, obviously, this 1.6 degree of temperature change and uh, how you approach that and everything around that was your thinking for the pole swim. But just explain how you had to reverse the psychology of that for Everest and and why it was so important to do that.
4: Yeah, so as Lewis alluded to, Usually, we would get him into a highly enhanced a uh, peak state, if you like, before he you know, dives into the water. And what we realized during the practice room was that he just wasn't getting enough oxygen into his lungs, that that particular approach, that strategy, was not going to work for this environment. And it was a great lesson for us as a team um, because we learned that just because a strategy has worked in the past doesn't mean that it's going to always work depending on the circumstances that you're in. And so when we left the practice swim that day, we realized that we were going to have to completely change our strategy. And I had done a lot of meditation. So I said to Lewis, right, we're going to get into this meditative state before you swim. And he looked at me as if I was crazy. I remember. He says, how do I do that? So I remember we hiked up to this lake. It was very difficult to get up to this, this lake. It's the highest lake in the world. And we hiked very slowly just to make sure that he, he kept his heart rate down. And then when we got there, you know, he sat in a tent on the side of the lake and we did a little meditation um, just to make sure that his heart rate was low because then it meant that he was taking in less oxygen. And at that altitude, that made a huge difference. And so we had to completely change the strategy. Lewis sort of slid into the water rather than dived in and off he went, as he said, swimming, breaststroke, He still had to do a mile, but of course the challenge with that was that he exposed himself for longer in the water, which was also a great risk uh, at that temperature and at that altitude.
1: And what about the idea of, of, well, coming up with the idea of where you'd want to swim and what you want to do? How do you do that, Lewis? What do you, what do you focus on? Is it about highlighting the plight of something in particular? Or is it about um, getting round the oceans in a particular order? I mean, how do you choose what you're going to do? And how do you take it from an idea um, to a logistical challenge to the challenge itself? I mean, because that, that must be quite a process in itself. And David, perhaps afterwards, you can talk about how difficult it is also to, to make these things happen, to bring them to life.
3: Georgie, my, my parents loved geography. And we had this enormous great atlas, you know, a big times atlas uh, in, the, in the living room. And every day a page was turned. And I always used to go down there, I used to look at it, I used to think, where can I swim? And I'm always looking for a place where I can swim, which can carry a very, very simple message. So the message has to be, uh, yes, the message is aimed at world leaders, but it's got to be simple enough for young ch- school children to understand. So here's a guy, going to swim across the North Pole, across an open patch of sea, to highlight the melting of the Arctic sea ice. Anybody can understand that. Okay. Well, here's somebody who's going to be swimming swimming on Mount Everest. And people say, well, how on earth can you swim on Mount Everest? And you say, well, because now there are lakes appearing on the glaciers because they're melting away. So I'm always looking for a place where I can, I can tell a story. I was looking for a swim from 2005. I was looking for a swim for two years to do, a really big swim that could carry the climate change message. And I was looking through the Times Atlas all the time, looking in the Arctic, looking in the Antarctic. And it was right in front of me, the North Pole. But I'd never thought about swimming there because I'd been constrained by previous swims where with with English channels, you know, as swimmers, we always started on land and finished on land. And I never thought, well, what about just starting on ice and finishing on ice? And I looked at the North Pole the one day, and I suddenly saw it. And I thought, there it is. Erdur. Why do I not see it? It is right there. And, and these, you, I've had these Erdur moments now throughout my career. I'm I, no. looking for a swim where I can carry a really simple message. But there's a, the there's a swim, there's the message, but then there's the stuff which happens afterwards, which is going around meeting heads of state and trying to get these areas protected. You can't just do the swim to highlight uh, issues. There's got to be the follow-up afterwards, and that's the role which I, I fulfill in my, in my role as, as UN patron of the oceans. Yeah.
2: Talk, talk to us a bit about that, Lewis, because you've met some pretty influential and, I imagine, pretty intimidating People, we talked about the queen, but there's been one or two others and, and, and
3: some interesting perhaps, characters along <laughs> the way.
2: Yeah, perhaps. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, t- talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, the interesting thing is, and I also choose a swim based on because if you look at the ocean, you look at all the different things which are impacting the oceans. I mean, at the moment, we've got the climate crisis, we've got serious overfishing, and we've got plastic pollution all over the world. So ultimately, the swim is, is going to carry one of those one of those messages. Um, I, I and I also I ask myself when I'm choosing a specific swim, is the issue big enough uh, to matter, but small enough to win? Is it big enough to matter, small enough to win? Uh, there's a place down in Antarctica called the Ross Sea. It is simply the most incredible place. You sail from the bottom of New Zealand, and you sail for about two weeks, and so finally you arrive in the Ross Sea. And it's a place where you see these humpback whales. You see, you know, uh, emperor penguins, leopard seals. It, it is one of the most impressive places on the planet. And one of the last wildernesses. This place was right on the on the front edge of, uh, you know, overfishing Big fishing fleets were coming down there and hoovering up a fish called Antarctic toothfish. And uh, this space was obviously incredibly important also for scientists. It's one of the last wilderness areas on Earth. For 17 years, international diplomats have been trying to get this area protected. I felt so strongly about it. I, I spoke to David and I said, let us go down there and let's do this swim. And all the international community, they'd all agreed to protect it. But under international law, two nations still had to agree it and that was Russia and China. And it was in Obama's last year of office. Uh, he sent John Kerry through to Beijing, and John Kerry was able to get the Chinese across the line. So the last remaining country, which had to be persuaded, was Russia. And so I said to David, I said, David, listen, let's go down to the Ross Sea. Let, because I bet you the Russians, they, they haven't even heard about what's happening. The, the Russians are dealing with so many issues. And it's enormous countries, 11 time zones. Um and they were dealing with so many issues at the time. I bet this has never, ever gone up to the president. Let's go there. Let's do a swim. And let's go to Russia. And let's try and persuade them. So, so off we jumped. We got on board a ship. We sailed down to the Ross Sea. And the only way I can describe it, Ben, is imagine sailing along. And suddenly, you see something which is like the White Cliffs of Dover. But it's not the White Cliffs of Dover. It's a Ross ice shelf. So you've got this massive ice shelf. And you've got the wind tunneling off this uh, from the bottom of Antarctica, coming down onto the sea. It is so cold that the sea, the, the, the surface level of the sea is freezing. The air temperatures are well over minus 20 air temperatures. The sea is minus 1.7. Uh, I had my wife with me uh, and I said to her just before the swim, I said, please just go up and down along the the edge of the ice and just have a look and just make sure that there are no leopard seals in the water. So she got lowered down to the water into a zodiac. She went up and down. And I watched as a wave hit the side of the boat, came up and froze literally as slush midair and hit her as slush. And then she came back into the boat. And then she said, we're ready. <laughs> and I, I got lowered down into the water. It was absolutely terrifying. I thought I was going to do a, ki- a kilometer swim. I did five minutes. And I said to myself, I, I, I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my arms. It was the first time it's ever happened. The conditions were so tough. I said to myself, if you don't get out right now, Lewis, you will never see Moscow. And in 35 years, I failed on three swims. And that was one of them. Anyway, I got out. Uh, we sailed to Argentina, myself and David then. Arrived in Moscow. And we didn't know what type of reception we would get in Moscow. But we met an incredible man called Slava Fetisov. Slava uh, is an ice hockey legend. He would be to Russia what Muhammad Ali was to America. And he said to us, he said, You know, Lewis, the world, and he had been a defender, he said, uh, in ice hockey. He'd won two Olympic gold medals. He's huge in, in Russia. He said, you know, the world needs more defenders and protectors. And then he decided to take us to all the key decision makers who would make the decision. So the Minister of the Environment, the Minister of Defense, the Head of Security, all the people around President Putin. And for a two-year period, I was shuttling backwards and forwards there. And then it was just one of these most amazing moments, which I'll never, ever forget, when Russia agreed to sign this deal and this protected area now is the size of Britain, France, Italy and Germany all put together. Uh, but that's, you know, the back end stuff, which is, which is significantly hard because you've got to persuade a nation why it's in their national interest to protect something which is thousands of kilometres away.
1: Pushing the boundaries is something that you're obviously comfortable with because you have to be in order to do what you do because it's the very nature of pioneering isn't it but there's going to be times where you're going to presumably really piss some people off in this process where you decide to just do something and people say well no you can't really do that and you can't, I mean that must be like a red rag to a bull with you it must be like no I am going to do it I'm just going to get on with it and this is going to be what happens David just just explain a little bit about this Thames swim and and what happened as a result of Lewis not not conforming) <laughs>
4: Lewis started his swim uh, at the source of the Thames and um, I actually remember he got very ill and I had to take him to hospital somewhere near Oxford but he recovered from that <clears throat> got back in the water the next day and carried on swimming but it, it was made very clear to us that uh, he was would not be able to swim past um, past Westminster otherwise he'd be arrested uh, we got a clear message I think from, um, from the harbour master was that the, the correct uh, title I'm referring to there Lewis? Yes. Yeah, is. the master. So he, um, he, he made it clear to us that if Lewis went past there, he would be arrested because he had been in contravention of uh, the shipping regulations. Of course, Lewis, being a maritime lawyer, was well aware of the maritime regulations. But uh, he wasn't having any of it. So, um, of course, he planned to carry on. And, uh, and when he got to Westminster, thankfully, there, were, there was probably a thousand journalists on the sides of, of the shore and uh, Lewis had arranged to stop um, and meet uh, the then Prime Minister Tony Blair at number 10. So I remember there was this extraordinary scene where Lewis got out, put on some shorts over his speedo, put on his slip slops and walked to number 10 to meet Tony Blair um, with the threat of being arrested hanging over his head. Uh, but of course, um, that didn't happen. He, he met Tony Blair, jumped straight back in the water and carried on swimming and the rest is history. <laughs> so what was
1: that? Tell us about that walk up Downing Street where you ended up sort of, you know, knocking on the door and in you went. I mean, what what was that? What was that whole experience like? And what on earth possessed you to do it that way? Why did you want to do it that way? Why was it important for you to, to make that statement?
3: The most extraordinary moment the day before when the Prime Minister's office called us up and said, Lewis, uh, when you get to uh, London, the Prime Minister is going to come down and try and see you. But if he's held up, can you pl- quickly run up to number 10 and come and meet us? Well, <laughs> it was one of these lovely moments when the harbour master called me up and said, Mr. Pugh, if you go past Teddington, I am going to arrest you. And I said to him, uh, I said, he was an admiral, a uh, former Royal Navy admiral who was now running the, the, the harbour, the, uh, the, the port of London authority. And I said to him, I said, Admiral, listen. Both of us are going to look silly if you arrest me because the prime minister is coming down. <laughs> and you could just hear this, you know, very few times in life, do you have this moment where you can really take on a job's worth? And I just said that, and he, he, just, he just said, well, send one of your people down to, down to my office and we'll see what can be done. And he slammed down the, down the phone. Anyway, I swam into London. I walked up to number, number 10. And here's the interesting thing. I spoke to Tony Blair. He was obviously um, he was very pleasant, but I was too young in my career. I was early thirties. I hadn't fought enough battles then. You know, when you're in your early thirties, you're you're an experienced swimmer, but you're not an experienced uh, campaigner. Now, when I'm going in there, I'm telling them exactly what we want and exactly what they what we feel they need to do, and you don't get fobbed off. So. In order to be a good swimmer, you need to be young. In order to be a good campaigner, you need a lot of grey hairs. And that's a great comment you made. You've got to have the
2: experience, and but you still need to have the endurance. So, do you feel like you're in your prime right now, Liz? What I mean, what's it, next on the on the agenda? No, right?
3: I, I, no to, to say to any swimmer that you know, so I'm 52 years old, that I am actually in my prime. I honestly believe that right now, because I can still swim with the young thrusters, but at the same time, I can still sit down with Putin's inner circle or with the prime minister or, 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 or any of them, and and explain to them what, what what I feel needs to be done and hold them to account.
2: Louis, we've had we've had this deb- debate with a few of few other uh, people that've been on the show on the podcast. What? What, in your view, do, do governments need to do, and is this a challenge that governments, because they need to be elected in most parts of the world, that they can't and they keep changing. they can't make these difficult decisions, which may be going to mean in the short term they they become unelectable because mm. issues you know we're seeing around Europe in particular at the moment with with the cost of energy crisis and so on. Is there another body? Should there be another body that can really push this agenda through and make these changes stick? Because Governments can't really do that in most
3: places. Yeah, we're seeing now, especially in Europe, how ineffective governments are. So, I mean, imagine if you are Liz Trust now, and you're your first day at work, and you realise all the issues you're facing. You're facing the war in Ukraine. You're fa- facing an energy crisis. You're facing a cost of living crisis. Everything's a crisis. Yeah. You know, you're dealing with all the impact of COVID. Just so many issues you are dealing with. The environment is just one of them. And my message to those world leaders is, yes, but the defining issue of our generation will be the health of our planet. We're the first generation that can do something properly about limiting the climate crisis, but we are the last generation also that can do something about it. Uh, I personally, you know, because I've been to so many of these climate summits, have seen just how slowly uh, world leaders and governments are moving and yet I've also been to, given. I, I give lots of speeches to businesses and realized how quickly they can respond. You know, a business has to respond to its customers. Uh, and, and if it doesn't respond quickly enough, the customer goes elsewhere. And so they're having to respond a lot quicker. And I think that's probably where we're going to see this, the significant changes taking place. Also, uh, we as individuals also have an incredibly important role to, uh, to play. We can't just leave it to governments or the governments must set policy. We can't just leave it to companies. Each of us has got a role to play. And uh, uh, my position is very, very clear that every single day when we make a purchase, we make a decision about the future of our planet. If it's the food we eat, the clothes we wear, how we get to work, uh, how we heat or cool our homes, every single one of those is a, a purchase and a decision about our future. And I'm urging, urging people, please uh, be incredibly conscious about how we, what we purchase now, um, because it all makes a difference.
1: Lewis, you're, you're always putting your head above the parapet to talk about climate change and you know the the situation that we're in at the minute does it ever feel like a lonely place we talk to a lot of people about you know people who sort of step out of comfort zones and 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 people that do that you know um with a solo mission in mind I mean do you ever feel lonely in that conversation or does that ever creep in
3: uh so exactly this time last year I was doing this swim across Greenland I was doing the swim across a place called the Lulasat Glacier. And and this glacier now is is moving at a speed of 40 meters per day in summer. 40 meters per day. And uh, I witnessed a mass carving. I want you to imagine a, uh, a fjord, which is 80 kilometers long. And at the end of the fjord is this glacier, and enormous icebergs a kilometer tall are falling into the sea there And I witnessed a uh, a mass carving where literally thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs were just pouring out to sea. It was like a river of of, of icebergs. And I was lowering myself down into this water. And next to me, I had this uh, Inuit lady called Annika Kroch who was driving the boat. I had my doctor, Dr. Charlotte Haldane, and then uh, you know a cameraman and the videographer. And we were, I was coming to swim past some of these icebergs. And icebergs are so dangerous to swim past because a kilometer tall iceberg, okay, is obviously you've got 100 meters above the water. You've got 900 meters below the water. And sometimes they can rotate and become unstable. And suddenly you can be 500 meters away and this iceberg is coming up underneath you really quickly. So it's a really dangerous place to, to, to do a swim. And as I was swimming and I was so cold, Deep down to the core, and I'm seeing these changes taking place. I'm thinking to myself, are the real decision makers actually hearing you? Are they hearing you? And it's a question I ask myself all the time. You know, and I've spent my life. Do you think they are? Some certainly are. I mean, to get the Ross Sea protected was just it was the most amazing, amazing experience. But we need to have so much more. The speed of the crisis—it's it, almost as if glaciers now are moving faster than our world leaders.
1: Lewis, just this is a really dark thought, but I just want to ask you. Um, and you sort of talked about it previously when you talked about one of your one of your swims. But is is it still like at this stage in your life now, and everything that you've done and accomplished, and and you know everything that you've achieved? If the worst thing happened, if if I'm trying to think of the best way of putting this. Hang on, let's have a think
2: but about it. If it didn't swim anymore.
1: No, no, my my point was is that would you would you die for your cause, I suppose, is my question, because it's such a it's such an unbelievable undertaking, the things that you do and the challenges and environments you put yourself in. I mean, it is. It's easy just to talk about it in a colloquial way, but it is a death-defying thing that you do every time you put your body in the water. It's a life-threatening scenario. So, are, is that something you've thought of? Are you are you prepared to 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 go there?
3: I'm incredibly conscious when I lower myself into the water, when I dive myself dive into the sea, that this could be the last last swim. Be under no illusions. But relating back to what David said, um, I about teams. I mitigate against the risk, not so much when I'm standing there about to dive into the water. I mitigate against the risk six months ahead of time when I choose the members of the team. Because if you choose the right people, right, the right boat driver, the right safety person, the right doctor, the right camera person, the right drone photographer, the right diver, if you choose the right people, you know that if things do go wrong, they'll make the very, very best decisions. All that having been said, I feel so passionate about protecting the oceans. I realize that this is the defining issue of our generation. We'll do whatever it takes now to try and get at least 30% of our oceans uh, fully protected now by 2030. This is my life's mission. And I hope, Georgie, to swim until the, the last day of my life.
1: Well, that's nice. I just wanted to I just wanted to ask it because I thought it was important. On the on we're just we're at the end now. We're sort of coming coming to a close. And I just wanted to finish we always ask everybody if um they would give sort of a performance tip um for everyday people who are listening into this podcast who aren't endurance swimmers who who aren't, you know, mental mental coaches just to give a performance tip for um how you would better perform every day. So, so what would it be, David, to, to people? What would you say um, for how you would perform better in your, in your daily life to people? What would one tip be?
4: I think my most important tip would be to see the end result in your mind's eye uh, because that often forges the belief necessary to drive you forward. And by that, I mean, get a very clear picture of what it is that you want in your mind's eye, make it as big and bright and bold and beautiful as possible. Um, And I think if you have that strong vision, that strong uh, pull towards that, that outcome that you're looking for, that will stand you in very good stead. Whether it is walking around the neighborhood or running a marathon, whatever it might be, getting clear on that vision and seeing that end result in your mind's eye as clearly and vividly as possible, I think that's a simple thing that you can do to help reach one's goals, whatever they might be in life.
1: And Lewis, how about you? What would be a performance tip for how to perform better every day from you?
3: I'm not sure this is a performance tip, but I'll just explain. In, in my mind, courage is a muscle. So courage is a muscle. So we need to exercise it on a daily basis. And if you don't, certainly when you get to my age, you soften up really, really quickly. And then you stop taking risks. And then you're on a slow road downhill. And so I think uh, you one needs to exercise that muscle all the time. Keep pushing boundaries uh, and surround yourself by people who are courageous. There's a flip side of it is that uh, fear is also, uh, uh, is also very contagious. If you surround yourself by people who are worried and fearsome all the time, then equally you're not going to be able to do anything. So courage is really important, but you need to exercise it all the time. And then you'll be able to, to, to follow your dreams.
1: Those are two stonkingly good tips. Aren't
3: Strong,
2: they? yeah,
3: powerful.
1: Strong, brave, yeah. powerful, brilliant. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. It's been fascinating listening to both of you. So thank you. Yeah, thanks and very much. Uh,
2: yeah, Lewis, incredible the work that you've done. Really, I mean, just
3: amazing. So yeah, th- thanks a lot. Keep for,
2: swimming. For being, thanks a lot for being with us. Yeah, keep, keep going. Swimming.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Georgie, and thank you so much, Ben. It's been wonderful speaking to you both.
4: Thanks for having us.
2: That was incredibly powerful. I mean, Lewis is out there trying to save the world, sort of on his own, but also very reliant on the team as we as we heard. For me, the big takeaway, I think, was David talking about the psychology that goes into it to prepare Lewis mentally for these extreme physical challenges, and even as far as getting into the subconscious. So definitely something I'd I'd like to take away and learn learn a little bit more about it. but how about you
1: I I think for me it's the intensity with which he sort of approaches every challenge and that idea that I didn't really want to ask him about um what you know whether he's prepared to basically die for the mission but that was effectively what I ended up asking um and his his take on that was I'll do whatever it takes which is you know, when when you think about the sort of things that he's doing and the situations he's putting himself in, it's it's, it's quite astounding, really. But he obviously feels that passionately about he's it. He's
2: laying it all on the line, isn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. We, need, we need people to do that, because otherwise how are you going to highlight just how bad the situation is and what needs to be done? Um, thank you for watching and listening. Um, we are Ben and George Ainsley, and this has been Performance People. And remember, from what we've learned today, courage is a muscle.